This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. Well, we had a little darkness in us on Saturday around 2 o'clock. We were going to put together the chancel um, elements. And um, I got a text from one of the worship committee saying, uh, so uh, you're not here yet, and I hope you're planning to come, because this was your idea and we're not really sure what's going on right now. I, I'm paraphrasing, extremely so. So, little hyperbole, because I'm gonna admit it, there is sin in me. So a little bit of the stretch of the truth there. But, in coming and seeing, um, we had quite a wonderful array of nets and burlap and stones and boards and ropes, and the idea was, how do we bring together a story, material things, of a story made of letters on a page, told over centuries? So we tell the story for the next little while of the shipwreck at the end of Acts. Does anybody remember that there, I won't make you raise your hand. My guess is, not many of you are saying right now, there's a shipwreck at the end of Acts? We don't read Acts a lot. It's not a book we tend to jump into all that much. It's one of my favorites. Oh, I say that too much. Um, it's not hyperbole. I happen to really love these stories, I guess. And so, um, so I love this story too. Because this story, it it in Acts, we get to move with the apostles through those early days of Christianity when they are navigating whole new territories. And they are literally sailing all over the place. And that continues for thousands of years, shipwreck after shipwreck after shipwreck. The water was dangerous. It was dangerous to get up on a ship and go sailing, let alone to the places the apostles were called to go, which were in, in places on the map where it would literally be written, here be dragons. Go to Dragon Island and commune with God. And they ended up with stories. We have hagiographies, which are stories of the saints. We have so many of them that talk about how it all started with a shipwreck. And Paul gets a shipwreck too. And by telling that story, by leaning into the story that ends Acts, we're just going to explore this this Easter as we talk about resurrection, as we talk about what happens when it seems like life has wrecked us, that in fact God is with us. And I think that itself is such a key thing to understand about faith in Christianity. Our God, our, the work of Jesus on the cross reminds us in stark terms that life can wreck us, that the material of life 
can get blown apart or crushed apart or, or caught in storms. That's not a condemnation. It becomes an incredible opportunity. Doesn't make it easy sometimes. So we are continuing then with our stories of Paul and what Paul is doing. And we are not going to tell all the stories of Acts because Peter shows up in some of those stories. There's a lot of stories where the Jerusalem Council of the early Christ believers, the brothers of Jesus, Peter, the disciples, have these intense conversations. Some of them are Pharisees. Some of them are Christ believers. Some of them are Sadducees as they figure out what is this thing that we're doing? What does it mean that Jesus was crucified, but Christ believers and Judeans are seeing them all, him all over the place, that he is popping up, coming into prayers, coming into uh, roadways to walk with people and talk with people. He is here. What does that mean? So Paul, the last time that we kind of left him in our storytelling for Lent, had been, he had come into Jerusalem after many years of being an apostle in faraway places and come back to Jerusalem to the main Jerusalem council. And he had some friends there, including James, the brother of Jesus. And they decided that what they would do is they would, they would show his holiness that he had come a long way from the angry, violent man that he had been, um, that he was a sincere, sincere disciple of Jesus Christ. And they took him to the temple so he could become a Nazarite. But in the middle of that ritual, sacred as it was, somebody in the temple complex saw him, shaved head and all, and said, hey, I know that guy. That's Paul of Tarsus. That guy is spreading lies. That guy is telling Gentiles that they can be part of the heirs of Abraham without doing the proper things. They aren't living the law the way they're supposed to be living. They're not believing the way they're supposed to be living. Paul made a lot of people angry. They literally rip him out of the right and begin beating on him. He is rescued by Roman soldiers, and they want to know what's going on too. And Paul takes the break to try to talk to people about who he is. He tries to tell his story again. Look, I know that I made everybody here mad, that I'm doing something new with the Gentiles that doesn't make sense to everybody. And I'm used to be persecuting the Christ believers, and there are those of you that I have sincerely hurt. But what I'm trying to do is, my life has changed since I was interrupted from my violence by the words and the vision of Jesus Christ. And though I am unworthy, I want to serve, and that is what I'm doing, that I am changed. Maybe one or two people were persuaded, <laughs> but not very many others. And it descended again into violence, and the Roman soldiers had to take him away. 
He was brought before the council of priests who wanted him dead. He was going to be tortured for a confession, but then Paul pulls the Roman citizenship card out of his pocket, probably was actually in his pocket, and he said, can you do that to a Roman citizen? So we discover something about Paul, that Paul's family has power and influence. He's a Judean. He would have had to purchase that citizenship. And it wouldn't have probably been him, probably would have been his father or grandfather. So now it's not so easy to just let the Judeans and the high priests who are betrayed because he became a Christ believer have their way. They can't just throw him to the mob who are mad at him for following and persecuting them in the first place. He is a conundrum what to do with him. He's too high status to leave alone. So he ends up staying a prisoner uh, in the administrative offices and residences of the Roman governors uh, of, the, of Judea. And then um, eventually he sort of gets tired of that and he says, I want to appeal to Caesar. Again, we get the sense that this isn't to nobody. You know, like uh, I couldn't just say, I appeal to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? Um, say I'm at worship meeting and they say, what, you want to do a shipwreck? Are you kidding me? And I say, I appeal to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's an empty threat, right? Like, pfft, you don't know her, A, and B, she doesn't know you, so whatever. But if it was real, if I really did know her, suddenly I'm a, got some st I'm a high status person. It's harder to figure out what to do with me. So King Agrippa, the, this is the last of the Herodian king line who has been raised in the Roman court. This is the way the strong men Caesars of Rome did it. So you, they had client kings who they were, they let be the titular head of a certain ethnic community to keep that ethnic community happy. But you sent your children to be raised in Rome. Couple of reasons for that. One, it's really easy to keep a client king in line if you have their kids. Second thing is, you get to raise them in the Roman way. Right? Really, really powerful way to do it. Horrible way to do it. Powerful way to do it. So King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, Berenice, they come <coughs> to hear this Paul they've been hearing about. Agrippa is... Uh, the king of the Judeans. But when it came to war in just eight years or so from this time, he would side with Rome when they came in and destroyed Jerusalem. This is not a friend of the Judeans. But they declare him free of guilt. And they say, well, we could just let you go. Except that you have appealed to Caesar, and Caesar is the only one now who can exonerate you or declare you guilty. The Caesar, the Roman Caesar at that time was Nero. So Paul is still a prisoner, and he is 
given into the custody of a local centurion unit. Lots of scholars argue about who this Julius centurion was. Because he has a first name, he's probably also a Roman citizen. Um, Probably he served a local unit. Probably wasn't a Roman soldier in the serving the emperor, but we don't really know. And he is put on a boat because he has to go to Rome. So as we work through the scripture, um, he boards the ship and they begin to sail along. So that would be a merchant ship. So there's no passenger ships at this time. So there's no like cabins, there's no shuffleboard, you know, there's not, um, there's not a cafeteria and a buffet, none of that. You go to the ship captain or his representative and you bring out some money and you say, I would like to sail, where are you going? And the captain will say, well, I'm headed for Alexandria. And so you say, can I, can I come along? Can I board the boat and sail with you? And for money, you can. And you slept out on the top deck. Some people pitch tents. You slept there. You brought your own food, your own supplies. Paul brings friends with him. We think Luke, the writer, comes with him. And if you notice when you're reading uh, the book that um, we, we change pronouns, sometimes the storyteller will say, we did this. And other times they will say in the third person that this happened. So it's an interesting mix of storytelling. But there's, so they, so they've got, have everything provided. They stop at the first port and Julius allows Paul to go and get supplies from friends, right? If you, this is just kind of how it worked back then. Um, No shuffleboard, bummer. Um, And then they hook up with another, um, with another ship once they get to Alexandria. So there's so many details in here about sailing. And one of the reasons for that is that this, when we read the book of John and we're reading it alongside the letters of John, John has this esoteric, right? It's this symbology. There is no darkness in him. There is only light. And, you know, you're, pretty soon you find your body sailing away, right? Like a hot air balloon. As you sort of listen to this sort of celestial language of uh, the heavenly language, the divine language that we use to try to describe those things. Paul is a Judean and the Hebrew heritage was very material. Just like, look at, look at this beautiful church. Look at the carvings, the way that the master craftsmen uh, worked on this church. Look at the lintels and the posts. Look at the railings. The material is used as an understood expression of God, that we are not separate from the material of the world, that we are in fact material of the world, and that the material of the story, where they sailed, what they sailed with, actually matters. Because this isn't some esoteric, make-believe fairy tale. They're wanting to show how the real Life, the real material life of Paul as he makes this final journey to Rome is part of what God is doing. That God's plan for us isn't some separate soul spirit thing and we just sort of haphazardly happen to 
have cells and hands and fingerprints, but these things are deeply part of who and what we are. There was a, um, our district superintendent asked the clergy and opened to lay people to write um, a uh, theological statement. Uh, he, it was a contest, just um, trying to make it fun, I guess, with the, the idea being that we need to look at theologies that will move us into the years to come that some of the theologies that we have are kind of stale, right? Or the language is no longer a language that resonates for us. Remember, we spent the whole whole context of Lent, uh, time of Lent talking about the word conversion, right? Because it's a hard word and it's so stale and it has so many things about it that, that seem to hang on and linger that really are no longer how we would talk about transformation. And so... Um, I was asked to share that, that mine was the winning um, uh, essay, um, which does help because there's money towards apportionments, uh, so yay. Um, but um, uh, I think it's a worthy endeavor. There were apparently uh, some wonderful, I'm hoping that they published more than just mine, and it's not very pastoral, so... When you read it, you know, know that I wrote that as a theological piece, which is a different than a pastoral piece. But the idea being that we have, in the days of John Wesley, there is in the hymns a deep understanding that we are physical human beings. Like I said in the prayer, that we sweat, right? That we're hairy. The Judeans understood this. They understood the hairy, sweaty God, and they really came into some uh, conflict with the Greek God that was this sort of golden light that was unmovable, spherical, floating around somewhere. See how just desperately different those are, and Christianity has wrestled in the middle of that with the Syrian expressions and the Eastern Orthodox expressions of Christianity, which bring with it this sort of material understanding of God. And the, um, uh, and the Greeks uh, and the Europeans who sort of bring into it this mindness. That's why I don't like the word Godhead. It reinforces this idea that God is mind alone, right? That God is intellect. Um, we are, in fact, matter. We matter because we are matter. That word is so important in the way we use it. I, I watched a TED Talk by Bonnie Brasler, and she was talking about how the microbes of the body, there are 10 times as many microbes in our bodies than there are human cells. At best, we are 10% human. And those bacteria and those microbes, they talk to each other. It can turn on. You get enough of the mean bacteria that want to have their own life, not yours, thank you. You're there. Don't eat Cool Whip. Please, nobody eat Cool Whip. Okay. That tangent there. Okay, so. But what happens is 
if you get attacked by enough bacteria, the bacteria, they send out little like communication sensors. They're like little boats and they dock with little receptors. And enough of those little bad bacteria boats out there docking with enough receptors and guess what? It sends a signal to turn it all on. That's why when we get sick, it seems like a bunch of things hit us all at once because you're turning it all on in there. The good news is it works the other way around too. There's lots and lots of good bacteria inside us. They are also sending out their little signals. They're docking with all our receptors. So meditation, prayer, song, humming, filling your heart with light and love and care matters. There's that word again, matters, makes material, the material that we are. The science wants to tell us the material is dead. People like Christopher Hitchens and folks like that, they want to say material is dead. It's just not true. Material is deeply part of what God has created. Aliveness is so much bigger than who and what we can imagine. Who qualifies as aliveness? I was watching uh, Lincoln again. It's on Netflix. Two-thirds of people were counted as alive. Who has the legitimacy to be counted as aliveness? We've had people uh, uh, standing up for the rights of, um, uh, f- of animals, dogs, cats. That it's, it's actually, being alive is so much richer and deeper than we can imagine. And God is in all of it. We can't carve creation off as if it's dead and we are the only ones who matter. They are matter too. God, by the power of the Spirit, together with creation, literally knits the fabric of this world the way a master craftsman carves that. It wouldn't look like that if the heart wasn't in it. And we would not look like we do if God's heart wasn't in it. And Jesus entered fully into that, microbes and all. So if you're trying to create this perfection, this David, this great Greek orb, you are going to have to come to terms with the Judean God who makes us 10% human and fills us with microbes. And if Jesus came fully human, he was full of microbes too. Redeeming not just humankind, but all of creation. We were made to matter. (sighs) I kind of care about that stuff. So often, we don't think we matter very much. We don't think that people care about us. 
or we discount others and think they don't matter very much. And I would say that if we discount others, though we harm ourselves, that we are not in keeping with the work of Jesus Christ who came fully, fully human in every way. And if we do not understand that when life wrecks us, when our material is broken apart, if we think that material is dead, we imagine that as some sort of condemnation of who and what we are. We weren't good enough to transcend the material and be able by our spirit selves just to hold the whole boat together and sail over the storms and currents. Doesn't that get in your head? If you'd only just tried harder or been a better human being or mattered more, you'd have been okay. And that's just utter baloney and it's hurtful. When life wrecks you, God is with you. Always. We matter. We make matter. We shift matter. We sail. We ride. We run. We get sick. We get better. We don't eat Cool Whip. <laughs> don't eat that stuff. Hold that in the heart of who you are. <laughs> The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. If you think about how much you matter, the connected weaving of the spiritual and the material in your perfectly designed body, you will know that no matter what, God is with you. Amen? Amen. Let's just take a moment to reflect.